This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Courageous Legacy, the new movie from Sherwood Pictures, Affirm Films, Provident Films, and the Kendrick Brothers. Remastered in 4K and including a new ending, Courageous Legacy, rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. In theaters now. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Dr. William Lane Craig is a name that most of us probably know. He is a respected Christian philosopher and author. He's professor of philosophy at Houston Baptist University and research professor of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology. But he recently came under some theological scrutiny after publishing an article over at First Things called The Historical Adam. Now, unfortunately, in this article, Dr. Craig does not affirm the historical Adam and casts doubts on the literal interpretation of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. These are, of course, very important errors to address, and I am so glad that my next guest responded biblically to this article in a piece of his own. So we are joined now by Dr. Owen Strand, provost and research professor of theology at Grace Bible Theological Seminary. He's a senior fellow with the Family Research Council, and his latest book, great book, is called Christianity and Wokeness. Owen, it's so great to welcome you back. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Janet. Great to be back with you. Well, I have to, having read Dr. Craig's article and having read your article, I agree when you call Dr. Craig's article one of the most confusing articles you've read. I had the exact same response, like you think he's going one direction, and then he kind of spins around and says something you don't expect. How would you best summarize the thesis, if you can find one, of his argument on the historical Adam and also Genesis 1 through 11? How would you kind of break it down? Yeah, in one word, tortured. Um, <laughs> right. Basically, basically, William Lane Craig in this essay, and I think in his book more broadly that comes out in a month, from what I understand, uh, tries to set up an understanding of Genesis. He does a genre analysis of Genesis 1 through 11, in which he says that Genesis 1 through 11 does give us basically truth. There is, there is some element of Genesis 1 through 11 that is historical. He wants to hold on to that by what he says. But then it is also mythological. There are mythological elements, and it is a metaphorical and figurative section of Scripture. In particular, Genesis 1 through 3 is metaphorical and figurative. <laughs> Later on in the piece, Janet, William Lane Craig says that there is some sense in which Adam and his fall is historical. So he technically affirms it. But what I said in my response to him that you kindly mentioned a minute ago is that if you set up Genesis 1 through 11 as basically a myth, uh, you, you have not allowed yourself the ground or the foundation to then claim that the Adam of Genesis 1 through 11 is in any sense historical. So Craig fundamentally makes a claim, but he has undercut his own claim by his genre analysis. Well, it seems that way to me, too, because he says Adam is both historical and figurative. Now, I'm not a philosopher, but it seems to me that you can't be both simultaneously, can you? If you're figurative, that means you're not literal. So how can you be historical and figurative at the same time? This is frankly a move that um, professing evangelical Old Testament scholars and theologians have been making for a very long time. But what they have not done is called their view mytho-history. That's what Craig calls this 
setup that I have been describing here and you have referenced. He calls it mytho-history. And that is not (laughs) a framing that will allow you to affirm that, for example, Adam is historical in any meaningful sense, because uh, Craig also mocks the concept that Genesis 1 through 3 is to be taken literally. And so you have here an untenable dualism with regard to Genesis 1 through 3 in particular, and Genesis 1 through 11 more broadly. You have Craig saying, guys, in his first things piece, some of this is historical. So that sounds good. And that 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 um, allows conservative evangelicals in particular to think, oh, no, he's still on our team. Right. But then he goes and he says it's mythical. And you have to recognize you have the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4 and numerous other places warning us about myths and telling us to have nothing to do with myths. And here is William Lane Craig using the term mytho-history to describe Genesis 1 through 3. In some, Janet, that will not hold. Yeah. That you cannot have Adam be both mythical and historical. It doesn't work. He says it does, but it doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. He also says that the stories of Adam and Eve function as Israel's foundational myth. Now, some of us who have sat through Bible classes may have heard about the fact that, oh, we talk about the ancient Near East and some of the myths, and this kind of goes along with some of the myths that other peoples had during that ancient period of time. And he kind of gets away from that and says, well, no, we're not saying that the Bible picked up the myth from other sources. But if you were calling this Israel's foundational myth, Again, we have the same problem. How can it be mythical and historical at the same time? Does he have a different definition of myth than what he's stating? Because I'm reading his definition of myth and I'm thinking, what is he talking about? I mean, I don't even understand what where this came from in the first place, this kind of mytho-history hermeneutic that he's using. No, you're reading it rightly, Janet. Fundamentally, William Lane Craig, let me, get, let me just not be quite so polite here. Fundamentally, William Lane Craig is embarrassed by Genesis 1 through 3. He's been in conversation for decades with very smart skeptics. He's done a lot of apologetics work, and he is tired, I think, of being termed the fundamentalist on the the Christian side. And I don't know William Lane Craig personally, and I certainly don't know his, his mind, but if you read the piece and if you watch his interview that he did on YouTube with Sean McDowell, he openly mocks He's almost laughing out loud as he mocks the idea that there is a talking snake in Genesis uh, 3, and there is this magical tree, and if you eat its fruit, you will, you will not live forever, or you will live forever. So at somewhere along the line, I'm not sure where, Janet, but William Lane Craig has become very much embarrassed by Genesis 1 through 3. And so that's what you're getting when he's saying that it is metaphorical or figurative. There is no sense in which the Bible can be metaphorical and figurative, but be giving us historical truth. There are figurative passages in Scripture. There are different genres of Scripture. There is the genre, for example, of prophecy. There's, there's, there are eschatological passages of, of Scripture that have to be interpreted very carefully, so we recognize that, and we further recognize that the Gospels and Genesis is shaped history. In other words, there are different uh, goals that the the authors have in mind. Genesis 2 is a double click, if you will, on the sixth day of creation, which has already ended at the end of Genesis 1. So there's a shaping to the history of Scripture that does no violence to a literal view of, of, of history. But William Lane Craig, again, to repeat myself here, is embarrassed by the Bible. 
and that is a deadly place to be. Well, it seems that he really is. I don't think that that's being impolite so much as it's being accurate, because I got the same impression as I was reading through. I don't mean to be impolite to him either, but it does seem like he's saying that. He also says that we have to distinguish between the literary Adam and the historical Adam. Again, what is a literary Adam? He's just kind of a floating. I guess this is kind of back to the figurative Adam, the literary Adam. Where does the Bible give us any kind of framework for taking a person mentioned in scripture and separating him into these different roles, it would seem. Okay, well, he's true. He may be true in a story, but he's also literal, but he's also historical, but he's also figurative. This is just bizarre to me. It is bizarre, and it's what happens when you move away from trust in scripture, uh, and yet you are trying still to hold your evangelical card in your hand, and so you're trying to find a way to continue to affirm Adam, but you are also at the same time telling us that Adam is no more than a character in a story. Adam in a story is an actual phrase that he uses, and he distinguishes between the historical Adam and the literary Adam. Even though where he is talking about the historical Adam, if you read him very carefully in this First Things essay, you will see that he is not associating the historical Adam that Paul talks about neatly with the Adam of Genesis 1 through 3. And so by numerous different trap doors, uh, Janet, William Lane Craig is not affirming the historical Adam. He says he is. Some may be gulled to believe that he does. But by the uh, framing that he himself has set up, I didn't ask him to set it up so that I could respond to him. He set it up. Uh, He can't affirm it. And I pray that evangelicals who have been getting squishy on this point will not follow him either. Well, that's a really important thing to say. Dr. Owen Strand with us. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back on Janet Mefford today. Don't go away. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mafford for Bible League International. Jaime is an itinerant pastor in Ecuador. In Latin America, there, there are violence. Pastors and Christian workers uh, face with attackers, thieves, gangs. So that's the, that's the problem. 
Jaime will travel days by foot, boat, and mule. He's been beaten by warlocks, robbed, and suffered broken bones after falling in the Andes Mountains. What awaits him at the end of each trip? A thriving congregation of hundreds of believers in an area where Christianity is fiercely opposed. When I share Jaime's story, I recall Isaiah 6, 8. Whom shall I send? Who will go? I believe this man is enduring more than some pastors ever will. And like others in the world where Bibles are desperately needed, Jaime is humbly asking us to send God's word. For only $5, you can send a Bible to Latin America and around the world, and a special match will double your gift. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now here's Janet. This hour of Janet Mefford today is brought to you in part by Courageous Legacy, the new film from Sherwood Pictures, Affirm Films, Provident Films, and the Kendrick Brothers, remastered in 4K, and including a new ending, Courageous Legacy, rated PG-13, now playing. Dr. Owen Strand is joining us, provost and research professor of theology at Grace Bible Theological Seminary. He is author of Christianity and Wokeness, and boy, has he written a great piece over at his own uh, area here, Owen Strand on Substack, a response to William Lane Craig on the historical Adam, this is referring to a piece written by Dr. William Lane Craig, the Christian philosopher, in First Things on the historical Adam. And we've been breaking down some of the very strange things that Dr. Craig is saying and, and talking about why they're so important to refute. This is really important. I, I, I just can't emphasize this enough, Ona, and I know you feel the same way. When you go back to Romans chapter 5, and I'm picking it up in verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, to be sure sin was in the world before the law was given, etc. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. So you have in Scripture the first Adam and the second Adam. What happens to the second Adam, Jesus Christ, if the first Adam turns out to be figurative or mythical? Yeah, it's not going to work. Um, that's what we've been hearing from a kind of centrist type in the evangelical world for some years to uh, uh, past now, that we can affirm that Genesis 12 through 50 is actual history. But Genesis 1 through 11 is called many different things, but Craig calls it mytho-history. And that's just not the way it works. You think of the genealogy, for example, of Matthew 1, uh, another text that needs to be brought into play with what you read rightly, from Romans 5, 12 to 19, which is probably the clearest passage in all the scripture on the historicity of Adam. If you're taking the genealogies of Matthew seriously, for example, you're not going to be able to affirm that some of those characters are real, they actually lived, and some of those characters are myths. Uh, They're like Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings, or they're, (laughs) they're like something out of Narnia. That is not how the Bible works. The Bible doesn't give us a blend of history and Narnia. The Bible gives us history when it is telling us about history. I recognize that a lot of evangelicals want, you know, a kind of more textured position, a more complicated position, because that feels more scholarly and that feels more thoughtful than than sort of rotely affirming the Bible. But that is what we are called to do when the Bible is giving us truth. We are called to affirm that truth. And Paul builds the very substructure, the the meta-narrative of the Bible upon Adam and then upon the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Death comes through Adam, a real historical man, who really historically fell, and salvation comes through Jesus, a real historical man, through whom salvation really did historically come. 
Right. So it's a big problem. And when you look at Genesis 1 through 11, which he says has the key characteristics of myth, uh, but an interest in history, you, you got the same problem just talking about that entire passage of scripture. What do we do with this whole problem of a growing sector within evangelical circles beginning to question whether or not Genesis 1 through 11 are literal history? How do we defend that? And why is it so critical for the entire interpretation of God's word as a whole to get Genesis 1 through 11 right, to understand that this is history? Yeah, we think of a text like 2 Peter 1.16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Uh, You recognize that if you're being brought into a framework, if you're being told by evangelical professors at Christian colleges, as is happening all over the place, and now increasingly at seminaries, that Adam is not a real person, you as a father or mother, you as a pastor who is in some way involved in sending students that way, you're going to have to recognize you have a choice. Okay, you have a choice between the applause of man, which is perfectly happy, the natural man, fallen man, unsaved people are very happy to treat the Bible like any other book. They're very happy to see some truth in it, uh, like like Aesop's fables, and then also, you know, uh, some some historical made up stuff. But that is not a sound framing for the Bible. We have to treat the Bible as the Word of God, and Peter, like Paul, tells us, they absolutely did not follow myths. They followed an actual historical account of Christ, and the historical account of Christ depends upon a first Adam who really was a historical man. So um, if there are pastors that your listeners are hearing who are flaking on this, it is time to schedule an appointment with that pastor and respectfully and graciously talk through these things. And if there is not repentance uh, from that wavering, find a new pastor, find a new church who's going to feed you uh, the truth of the Word of God, Amen. not made up myths. Yeah, that's right. Well, and talking about Genesis 1 through 11, he acknowledges the central truths in those passages. God is one, he's personal, he's transcendent, he's the creator, etc. But he says yeah. such truths do not depend upon reading the primeval narratives literalistically. Well, <laughs> if you have God creating the world literally and historically, when you go through the early chapters of Genesis, but we don't have to worry about reading it literally then how can you say God is creator? Because that's what it literally says. This is just nonsense when I'm reading through this. It is. And, um, you know, Genesis 1-1 begins with, in the beginning. The first words of the Bible, the entire Bible, are in the beginning. In other words, this is really where it all kicks off. These are origins. This is the account you need, uh, reader of Scripture, in order to understand the creation of all things including the world and the man, and then the fall that follows. So we are not playing this soft when it comes to uh, whether Genesis 1 is giving us real truth, historical truth. Uh, theological truth depends on historical accuracy, according to Scripture. And so we can't waver here. No, we can't. Yeah, you know, you had referenced liberal theologians have been making these kinds of errors for years, obviously. But help people understand, if you can, Owen, what is the domino effect? When you start with this concept of mytho-history in trying to interpret Genesis, where does it end up? What are the next dominoes to fall if someone begins down this path? Well, certainly you'll start questioning other figures in Scripture and miraculous events and supernatural events in Scripture 
will be questioned as well. Uh, so you're going to start seeing people waver about the historicity of Christ, and you're going to come to different uh, miraculous accounts throughout the Bible, and you're going to w- waver on those. You know, all this is really driven, Janet, by an apologetic strategy, so-called. It's not really any strategy at all. But people like Craig think that they are saving the faith by abandoning tenets of the faith. <laughs> they think they are saving Christianity by abandoning Christianity, at least the embarrassing parts. And here is what we need to be very clear about. We can talk about individual miracles and individual events of Scripture, Old and New Testament, but in a broader sense, we actually need to to kind of stop and push away from the table in this discussion and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you thinking that you are going to win over skeptics and thoughtful people by discarding doctrine? (laughs) Because if you do, I can't join you in this at all. One of the major... Uh, attempts that liberals make, really the one that they want to do, is they want to give up divine judgment. They want to give up eternal judgment. Mm. That, is, that is really the goal of a project like this, because our, our hearts naturally push as hard as they can, the natural man's heart, against the concept of divine eternal judgment. And so that is often where this argument will go, that um, in order to save the faith, we're going to need to take out the doctrine of divine judgment, which, by the way, just happens to let all of us off the hook. We can live any way we want, and God is not going to hold us to account. Uh, but all of that is untrue and ultimately is is a lie. Yeah, well, and, and just this whole uh, you know realm of philosophy, when you look at the credentials, which in some ways are very substantial for Dr. Craig, he's well-educated and he has important yeah. positions and so forth, but... What about philosophy and an expertise in philosophy guiding you through theology? I mean, I'm not saying that you can't know some philosophy and also be a good theologian, but what are your reflections on that? Or what are your impressions of somebody who's, you know, majoring in philosophy, doing theology? And and are we mixing metaphors here? Are we mixing genres? Is that part of the problem? Oh, that is key. That is key. Um, It's interesting because there's a movement today to really um, bring natural theology, for example, Aquinas-like natural theology back into the Church. In other words, to construct a case for the Christian faith Mm. from reason, from our our own mind, not even a regenerate mind, mind you, but but our own natural mind. And uh, the Reformers were right when they emphasized that all the human person falls in the fall. So our mind is very much affected by the fall, just as our heart is, just as our soul is, as our body is. And what that means, Janet, is that we need to go back to 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Pastors listening to this should, should preach on that, on that passage and teach on that passage and help their listeners, especially the more theologically-minded ones, the more intellectual ones, understand that we are not synthesizing the Bible with philosophy. We are not synthesizing uh, Christianity with any other ideology. This is the real challenge of our time. It is ultimately a challenge to the sufficiency of Scripture, and it pops up in lots of different places. Uh, This particular fracas with William Lane Craig is just one of them, where he is really trying to synthesize Darwinian evolution. He tells us that hominins existed, kind of ape-like creatures, roughly a million years ago, and that's actually how the world came to be and actually how the human race got started. So what he ends up doing, Janet, is he's he, he deflates confidence in the actual scriptural account of Genesis 1 through 3, and then he gives us his own wisdom. He gives us his own account from secular evolutionists, and he tells us that's actually the account to trust. When there is no sacred word behind it, there is no God who has authored that, 
It is man's wisdom. And so there is a major challenge here that we must be aware of. We are not Thomists as evangelicals. No, no, we're not. And yet he says the snake is not plausibly a literal reptile. So he knows that the snake wasn't literal, even though that that is in the Bible, but he knows about Darwinian evolution. It's just incredible. Well, you know what? Oh, and I'm just so glad that you wrote the response piece that you did. I hope people will read it over at Substack. It's called A Response to William Lane Craig on the Historical Adam. Brilliant job on that. Dr. Owen Strands, thank you so much for taking time to be with us, Owen. I really appreciate what you do. My joy, Janet. Thanks for having me. All right. God bless you. Thanks again. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by The Jesus Music, the new documentary from Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine, featuring interviews with many artists from contemporary Christian music. The Jesus Music, only in theaters beginning October 1st. More information is available at thejesusmusic.movie. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford. We're back on Janet Mefford Today. How unique is the Lord Jesus Christ? You might remember the essay about it called One Solitary Life from Dr. James Allen Francis. Here's an excerpt from it describing Jesus. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. 19 long centuries have come and gone, and today he is a centerpiece of the human race. What is it that is so distinctive about the Lord Jesus? A lot of people don't know. But in fact, God's word lays it all out. And we're going to talk about it today with Cecil Price, who is president of Gospel Advancement Ministries and the senior research fellow with Christian Information Ministries. He is out with a book. We're going to discuss the unique one, 18 Distinctives of Jesus Christ. Great to have you here, Cecil. How are you? Very well, Janet. Thank you for this opportunity. Oh, glad you're here. Why talk about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ? There are many different things we could talk about the Lord uh, and discuss, but the uniqueness is an important subject. Why do you think so? Well, as, as you look at the, the Christ of history, as, as you have mentioned on your radio program, there's a lot of misinformation about Christ. And I think if we use the Bible just to examine uh, the, the, the Jesus of the Bible, we'll just be amazed or just overwhelmed by just... There are some similarities between us, but also there's some vast differences, and and Jesus goes about that. In fact, uh, uh, you're probably familiar with uh, Gary Habermas mm-hmm. uh, with Liberty University. Uh, he's he's made a, a, just a tremendous quote. He said, uh, uh, Jesus claims to be God. It may surprise you that there's no reliable documentation of any founder of any other major religion other than Jesus ever claiming to be God. Right. So again, we may have some kooky cult leaders or, or some insane people who made who such claims. But again, Jesus stands alone as saying he is God. Well, and this is interesting what you're pointing out, because I think for a lot of people who are very uninformed, they'll lump Jesus together with Buddha or Muhammad or Hare Krishna or all of these other religious leaders and say, oh, they all basically taught the same thing. What would you say back to that? How would you respond to somebody who really was convinced that Jesus was just one among many religious leaders who basically thought the same way? I would encourage people to examine uh, the scriptures. In fact, uh, a, a lot of people are, are maybe hesitant to do that, but the, the scriptures will withstand examination. And again, if you compare Jesus 
again, Jesus uh, had a, a supernatural conception. Uh, he had a supernatural uh, birth. He did things. He, he, uh, he, he healed the blind. He raised people from the dead. Uh, we don't see your average run-of-the-mill uh, founder of any religion doing that. So he, he set himself apart. Uh, as they say in Texas, it's not bragging if you can back it up. <laughs> and, and Jesus backed up being God by, by doing miraculous things, by doing miracles that, that no other uh, person has been able to do. Uh, so again, not only did he claim to be God, but he authenticated or substantiated being God through his works. That's right. He proved it. You know, it strikes me, I think it was D. James Kennedy who said years ago that one of the differences between Jesus and any other religious leader is people will say, for example, about, you know, talk about Jesus's teachings. And he said, in all other religions, you have to follow the teachings of the prophet, the teachings of the religious founder. But Christianity is not about the teachings of Jesus. Christianity is about Jesus himself. So that would be another thing that's very unique. Yes, and, and to dovetail on something you just said, uh, with every uh, other religion, uh, religious founder, if we were to find their grave, we know some, where some of their graves are, we would say occupied. We could put the sign occupied. Hmm. Jesus' grave is empty, and, and that makes the difference in the Christian faith. Is our founder, again, he backed up who he said he was, and again, he rose from the dead to prove that he was God. That's awesome. Let's talk a little bit about some of these distinctive Cecil, because these are all great. One of the first ones, well, actually, the first one was the pre-incarnate existence of Jesus. Now, Christians who've read the Old Testament and studied this a little bit will know something about this, that in fact, you have Christophanes in the Old Testament. Talk a little bit about what the Bible says on Jesus existing before he was ever born, because certainly he did as God. Jesus, uh, again, the, the Apostle John brings this to the forefront. Uh, he mentions in uh, John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, and that's a reference to, to Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yes. He was in the beginning with God, and all things, in fact, some, some people don't realize that, that Jesus is the, is, is the Creator. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into, into being. So, so Jesus, again, it, it's hard for you and I to put our, our hands around uh, a, a time when, before time. But see, Jesus as God exists outside of time. And so he, he never had a, a beginning. He never had an ending. And again, that's, that's just hard for us finite beings to, to understand. Oh, it is. Well, and you think of Christ's words in John eight fifty eight, where he said, Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. And this is the, the name of God. This is how God speaks in the Old Testament of himself. So those who were listening to the Lord talk that way knew exactly what he was saying. And see, that's mind-boggling because to his audience at that time, he was claiming to have existed before Abraham, and Abraham existed 2,000 years before Jesus' earthly ministry here, here on earth. Right, right. So again, there he's confirming his deity. Yes. Yeah. Well, that that is very significant. And and what would we see when we're examining the text of Scripture about all the verses that would confirm the preexistence of Christ? Well, there there are uh, verses in in the Old Testament. Uh, we, uh, sometimes the the angel of, of the Lord is is a pre pre incarnate reference to Christ, and sometimes it's uh, sometimes that terminology is used in different ways. But we can see uh, Christ coming through. There, there's there's a certain uh, scriptures that, that do mention him, and also we have a prophetic. Uh, there, there's prophecies about him, and and the prophets predicted 
uh, a coming Messiah. The, the, the Jews were looking for a conquering Messiah, mm-hmm. but again, Jesus was a suffering Messiah. So we, we see he fulfilled prophecy in many ways, uh, hundreds of years before the prophecies were given. It's really neat. And of course, was supernaturally conceived. There are those who say, well, maybe Mary wasn't really a virgin, and maybe he really wasn't born of the Holy Ghost, and all those scriptures says he was. How He could not have been our Savior, right, without being supernaturally conceived. We had a, a major problem because God is holy and we are, we are sinful. And the only solution to the problem is for someone who was sinless to die on our behalf. Right. And so in order for, uh, if, if a regular human, uh, we, we would have a sin nature. So, so God bypassed that by allowing a, a virgin to be uh, impregnated by the Holy Spirit. And again, Jesus was, was both fully God and fully man, but he was sinless. And so he was the sacrifice that God demanded to cover our sin. Right. To those people who would ask the question, why was it that Jesus did not inherit Mary's sinful nature? What's the best response to that? Uh, probably the best, best response, and, and I've heard this, uh, they're, they're saying that the sin nature is normally passed along through the earthly father. Hmm. And so that is, that is bypassed by having an earthly father and uh, having uh, uh, the Holy Spirit uh, as, as uh, uh, the, the conduit uh, that allowed Mary to be pregnant that bypass the sin nature. Right. But the sinlessness, as you pointed out, is absolutely essential. If you're going to have a savior, he has to be perfect. He has to be holy and sinless and perfectly righteous in order to save us. Yes. I, I mean, a person, I mean, Jesus could, could have died for his own sins if he, if, he, if, he, if he did have sin. But in order to die for sins of others, he had to be holy and perfect. Right. Fully God and fully man. And of course, he was worshipped as a child. This is, a, this is a point that I see glossed over sometimes, the fact that they came and worshipped him after he was born. And we sort of read through the Christmas story and don't talk much about that. Right. That, that is incredible. Uh, that's, that's mentioned in uh, Matthew 2. Uh, and, and again, it's, it's, uh, the context is talking about the, the Magi or the wise men. Right. And when they saw the child with Mary, they fell on the ground and worshipped him. And, and also... Uh, some people wonder why we have Christmas gifts. You know, they they brought gifts of of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to him. Right. And again, that's 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 our substantiation for having uh, gifts today. So uh, God allowed this. I mean, God throughout history has has made a point of pointing out his his spokes spokespeople or spokesmen. Uh, they were mainly the prophets. But again, with Jesus, you can see with all the things around his his conception, his birth. Uh, God is basically just putting a a big arrow with flashing lights to say, hey, uh, pay attention. Yeah, Cecil Price, we're going to come back talking about the unique one on Janet Meffer today. Stay with us. From Sherwood Pictures, Affirm Films, Provident Films, and the Kendrick Brothers comes Courageous Legacy. Celebrating 10 years of impact on families and fathers, remastered in 4K, and including a new ending and bonus scenes. So where are you, men of courage? I believe every father should step up and answer the call and say, I will, I will. Courageous Legacy, rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now playing. More information is available at CourageousTheMovie.com. 
Hi, this is Janet Mefford, and we're partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to save babies' lives through ultrasound. Here's how a nurse describes the power of an ultrasound. Just one example of a mom who came in was very abortion-minded, and when she saw the picture of her baby on ultrasound and saw that beating heart, it was a defining moment that just broke her and... She said, I just can't allow this baby to be killed for her own words. By letting a mother hear her baby's heartbeat and see her baby in her womb, she will choose life 80% of the time. I cannot tell you how many times a baby's life is saved through ultrasound. It's just an incredible tool. Will you help save babies' lives? For $140, you can sponsor free ultrasounds for five young women. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate, call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. From Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine comes a new documentary, The Jesus Music. Jesus Music found its way in my hometown and it changed my life. I saw contemporary Christian music born right before my very eyes. I think music is the most powerful universal language in the world. Featuring interviews with many artists from contemporary Christian music, including Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith, Toby Mack, and Kirk Franklin. The Jesus Music, only in theaters beginning October 1st. More information is available at thejesusmusic.com movie you're listening to janet mefford today and now here's janet we are back on janet mefford today thank you for being here and it really is the case that apart from jesus and apart from his resurrection from the dead there is no christian faith and yet we don't often look at all of the bible verses that are there showing how unique the lord is clearly he is unique but it really takes on a different view when you go to each of these verses that are outlined in cecil price's book the unique one 18 distinctives of jesus christ and we were talking a little bit about the wise men coming and worshiping the baby jesus and as i mentioned before we often overlook that part of the christmas story and say how was it that they were very wise recognizing that they should worship this baby. And the scripture doesn't really say how they determined that he was the son of God, other than the fact that you had, you know, angels declaring glory to God in the highest. But what a, what a sight that must have been. That was incredible. And, and especially, uh, I, I, I don't know about you, but for the last uh, couple of weeks, I've seen rainbows. Mm. Uh, it's been years since I've seen rainbows. But again, when you think about the star, the Bethlehem star, uh, that was out of the ordinary. That w- that would get people's attention. And again, with with wise men, you have to believe that God prompted them uh, with a curiosity uh, uh, to to find out what what was uh, the star pointing to. And For sure. when they did that, it, they found it uh, pointing to a babe in the manger. That's right. Now, when you get into all of the scripture that talks about Jesus being God's only begotten Son, and He called God the Father His Father, and God the Father calls Jesus His Son in His baptism. How significant is it to point out all of those distinctives of Jesus, the number of times that we see the Father confirming the Son and the Son confirming that He is the Son of the Father? There were, there were two things that caught my attention in, in my study. Uh, I won't say this happens in, in every chapter, but uh, relationships are important to God and, and relationships should be important to us. And Jesus makes reference to his relationship with God. In fact, uh, there, there are many purposes why he came down here, but one of the main purposes was to re- reveal the Father. And so he, he mentioned to his disciples, if you have seen me, you, you have seen the Father. Right. So many times for us, uh, the concept of, of God is something dis- distant. Uh, uh, with Jesus, he's, he's the Word in flesh. 
So if, if you want to know God, and, and people are curious about God, if you want to know God, uh, look at the Jesus in the Bible, and he will reveal to you the true God. Yes, right. I and the Father are one. And and this is his name, too, Emmanuel, God with us. It's yes. not It's not God's representative with us. It's God with us. God with us. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. What about Jesus's claim? We talked a little bit earlier about John eight fifty eight, where he said, before Abraham was, I am, and obviously declaring his deity. What about the equality with God the Father uh, and all the times that he really made that clear to those who were standing around him and listening? He, he made that clear, but also you see in the scriptures there are, there are roles that Jesus did. He willingly, he was equal with God the Father, but he submitted himself to the Father's will. And also you see in the Bible that the, the Holy Spirit exalts Jesus. So just as there's order, and in fact, that's, that's one of the evidence for a creator, there, there's order in the creation. There's God the Father, uh, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see that even in the created order with, uh, with men and women. There, there are certain roles for men, and there are certain roles for, for women. But again, Jesus valued his relationship, and again, uh, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, he backs up what he said. He proves that he was the Messiah. He, he claimed to be the Messiah. And by doing that, uh, he did he did uh, do miraculous deeds that were very impressive. Well, and and one of the passages that you point out is where he says, "Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven." And then says, "You know, for those who never knew him, he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness.'" Now, had he not been God incarnate, he he would never have been able to say that. That is akin to declaring that you are God, which in fact he was doing. That's that's a, a profound statement. And again, one, one major difference between Christianity and other religions is it's, it's works-based. People are always trying to work their way to God. With Christianity, uh, we can say Jesus did it all. Amen. Uh, it, it's done. And again, he paid, the, he paid the price for our sins, and all we have to do is, is basically, I tell people to sign the check. Jesus has a check with your name on it. You endorse it by believing uh, that he is God, that he can give you eternal life and forgive your sins. So again, that that's quite a contrast because most world religions were trying to do do uh, good deeds and, and win favor with God. With Jesus, he has done that for us, and all we have to do is personally appropriate uh, his death on the cross for our sins. Right. Now, Cecil, for those who are a little unclear on it because they get confused about the Trinity, which can trip people up, it's difficult to say one God in three persons, but it's undeniable that the Bible teaches it. What would you say to them about Jesus being the Son of God and yet being God at the same time? Because I have heard a lot of people say, I don't, I don't know how to reconcile that. He is equal with God. They're, they're, they're one God. There's a unity there. And again, to be honest with you, I have never met anyone that fully understands the Trinity. Right. There, there are some mysteries to the Trinity, but uh, Jesus, uh, uh, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit are all God. They're one in essence. They do have different roles, and uh, we have a fuller understanding of their roles in the New Testament. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, uh, the focus is, is basically on uh, God the Father, even though we, uh, looking back, we can see aspects of, of Jesus. In fact, uh, the psalmist mentions the, the Spirit of God also. Uh, but again, uh, we believe in one God in three persons. 
that, that are unified, and again, they express them ways. Uh, they express them themselves in different ways, and they def- they have different roles in ministries. Yeah. Now, another thing that I really think is important, and you have included this in your book, is that he said that he has authority on earth to forgive sins, and of course, this enraged the Jewish leaders of his day. Who are you? Only God can forgive sins. But again, that's that's an affirmation of his deity, and was something that was extremely offensive to the religious leaders of his day. You are so correct. In fact, I'm, I'm amazed, and uh, you probably run into uh, people, they claim, uh, Jesus never claimed to be God. Yeah, all the time. And, and, and I said, have you, have you read any, any parts of the New Testament? Uh, there, there's over and over that Jesus you know, uh, claimed to be God. And again, one of the things is, is prophetic. Uh, he, he, he claims that he's coming back, and he uses messianic terminology that can only be applied to God coming back. Yes, right. Now, to the central truth of the Christian faith, all of this leads up, obviously, to his crucifixion, but the important event is the resurrection. As you said before, he could anybody could be nailed to a cross and die for his own sins, but in order to be the Messiah, you would have to be raised from the dead. Can you speak a little bit to what the Bible has to say about the truth of the resurrection? Uh, the, the truth of, of the resurrection is, is again, the, the center of, of the Christian faith. In fact, uh, uh, the, the Apostle Paul writes in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, and that basically means good news, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And he goes on uh, in verses 13 and 14 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, but, there, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Right. Moreover, we're even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Several scholars have mentioned that, uh, that there, there, there are just certain facts, and, and again, you being a uh, 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 with a journalist background and a talk show host, you, you like facts. I do. We can, we can look and, and find there, there is evidence that would stand up in court that, that Jesus was or Jesus was raised from the dead. And, and even, even his enemies acknowledged that. I mean, they, they bribed the Roman soldiers. And, and again, this is mind-boggling. They said, uh, they bribed the Roman soldiers and said, say the disciples came while we were asleep and stole the body. Oh, wait a minute. If they were asleep, how in the world did they steal the body? <laughs> so as we, as we look at the uh, the resurrection again, it's it's one of the uh, probably the one one of the most profound documented evidences in history that Jesus did raise did, did come back from the grave. Yes, that's right. And the 500 some witnesses who yes. saw him after he was raised from the dead. Absolutely. And this I mean this is what fueled the apostles going on into the book of Acts that they all claimed we saw Christ risen from the dead. This is what they were all, you know, this gave them the, you know, the jolt that they needed to go out and say he really is who he said he was. Janet, I don't know about you, but I I would not be willing to die for a lie. No. And these these disciples, they were willing to die. So again, uh if if the resurrection were not true, I don't think they would have put their lives on the line. Absolutely. They would have had to have been crazy, and they certainly were not crazy. No. You do such a great job really outlining these biblical distinctives of Jesus Christ. The name of the book is The Unique One, Cecil Price, the author. And Cecil, just so good to have you here. I think you did a tremendous job here, and it was wonderful to have you. Thank you. I I, uh, appreciate the opportunity, and this will be a great book for recent high school grads 
or maybe someone would like to buy a book for their church library. This would be helpful for the library too. Sounds great. Again, the name of the book, The Unique One by Cecil Price. Thank you, Cecil. And thank you, thank you for being with us here on Janet Mefford today. We will see you next time. This hour of Janet Meffer today is brought to you in part by the new documentary, The Jesus Music, from Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine, featuring interviews with many artists from contemporary Christian music. The Jesus Music, only in theaters beginning October 1st. More information is available at thejesusmusic.movie.